Page fright is recorded on the traditional unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. To page fright. My name is Andrew French. I'm on Twitter at the Andrew French, and this, of course, is the world's first podcast that I host. I am thrilled to have you back for another episode. They're not necessarily bi-weekly anymore, but every time I jump behind the microphone, I am very excited to be bringing these interviews to you. And this week, or this episode, right? Because it's not bi-weekly anymore. Um, this one is no exception. I have some news to plug up front and then we'll get into this guest. Um, but the first thing I wanted to plug was that my second chapbook entitled Poems for Different Use is coming out very soon. Uh, and we're going to be launching it on November 14th this year uh, at one o'clock Pacific. It will be virtual through WordsFest in London, Ontario. Uh, so no matter where you are, you can attend. If you feel like coming by for an hour or two, uh, we're going to be reading a couple poems, doing a little Q&A sort of thing, and it'll be everybody from Rose Garden Press, where I'm publishing my chapbook, as well as 845 Press, where I published my first chapbook. Uh, so that's all I'll say about that, but that is also a lovely segue into today's guest, because today's guest is not just a talented writer, she is also the artist behind the cover of my first chapbook. So that was my first introduction to Celia's work. Um, I've recently read her book a couple times now, actually, The Lost Time Accidents, which we're going to be talking about today, and really, really enjoyed it. I felt pushed as a reader, um, but not in a way that was alienating in any way. It was very, like, challenging to read this book at times, just because terminologically there were things that I didn't know. Um, but at the same time, the vibe was very interesting. We talk about the vibe in the interview, so I won't, I won't talk too much about it. But I really, really like this book, and I hope that you'll check it out. Um, of course, at this point, you're wondering who the heck Sile Angler is, because you've seen her name in the title. You've heard me drop her name now. Let me tell you, Sile Angler is a queer, autistic writer and multidisciplinary artist. She is the author of The Lost Time Accidents, her debut poetry collection from Icehouse Press, which is the subject of today's episode. She's also the author of two chapbooks, The Phobics Handbook with Anstruther Press in 2020 and Threadbare, which came out with Baseline Press in 2019. Seeley's writing has placed second in CV2's two-day poem contest and Freefall Magazine's fiction contest, and was shortlisted for ARC Poetry Magazine's Poem of the Year in 2020. Seeley's recent work can be found in The Way Out is the Way In, an anthology of disabled poets from the League of Canadian Poets, and I Found Myself in You, a collaborative chapbook from friends of the show, Collusion Books. Here I am chatting with Seeley Englert. how's it going? Um, pretty great. How, how's it going with you? It's going okay. We, we had some, so transparency for the listener, we had some trouble setting up everything this morning, getting online, getting connected, but we're all good. <laughs> we're here now. And I'm so excited to talk about your book, The Lost Time Accidents. It's out now with Ice House Poetry. Um, before we jump into doing that and talking about what is a very cool book that I'm so excited to chat about, um, I'm wondering if I could get you to read a poem from it so that our listeners can get acquainted with your work. 
Absolutely. Um, so I think I'm going to read a poem from the first section in the book, and this is called This Body as a Rube Goldberg Machine. In the great war of your limbs versus the furniture, it's true what they don't say about the sixth sense, proprioception, awareness of what space a body occupies, to move a world around inside a world. On the smallest of scales, when atoms collide, you observe the mechanics of reverberation, the tiniest tilt of bone at one extreme of your blood and meat universe creates a ripple effect, dominoes through every muscle and joint. You discover the trigger in a cat's eye marble falling from your hand. At point of impact, its weight turns a carousel, tugs the thread that holds you upright toward a candle flame. A red balloon is released at a needle and bursts, startling the mouse which runs nowhere inside its wheel. This is how you wave goodbye, enter a room, kiss goodnight. Muscles function as pulleys, red rabbit holes and narrow bridges, cantilever hands, air or speech displaced by one wing grazing another. This is how your fingers grasp other fingers. In falling, gravity does the work for you, Machine cobbled from an uncertain set of bones, wrapped in a scar-colored nightgown. Toes catch on the sag of love-worn hand-me-downs. It goes tumbling, misstep, ricochet. These elbows, these hips blooming dark underneath, your shadow like a boy stitched to the wrong side of his skin. That ink spilled in water look to achieve balance between this body and the world's sharp edges. Separate depth perception into its component parts. Give them their own sentences. Lack of depth, lack of perception. Expect unexpected corners. See how multiple surfaces occupy the same planes, the whole house Picassoed into dangerous angles. Cut the words kinetic and perpetual into individual letters. Use them to patch the damaged areas. Accept that you do not know how to work this machine. I love this poem and I'm so glad you read it. Uh, it's oh, one of I'm my favorites like from that. the book. Yeah, I, I really like it. And one of the things I wanna talk about today is the body and we'll get to talking about that because that's what this poem is on. Uh, and I'm so excited about it, but uh, for listeners who are unfamiliar with this book as a whole, um, beyond this poem, how would you describe it in kind of like an elevator pitch? Mm, um, so I like to think of this book as sort of a strange kind of sentient museum where the reader can discover artifacts and stories collected in, from different times and, and places and fictions, all of them interacting in one space. But uh, like a museum, everything it contains is out of its time and place. So there's also a profound sense of loss. 
Yeah, I really like that. Uh, and I think that certainly reflects what's going on in this book. Um, there are some poems about some really strange objects and things that I'm just so excited to talk about today. Um, one of the things that I like most about the book, and I think that reflects kind of what you're talking about there, is the title, The Lost Time Accidents. How did you come to that title for the book? That was actually the third title for this collection. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, the first two didn't work out. Um, one was titled after a poem that we ended up cutting during the editing process. And the second we found was had already been used by another book recently. So this was the third. Oh, <laughs> and no this kidding. One, yeah, yeah, it was it was a weird process. But this one I managed to salvage from um, the title of a of a chapbook that I never ended up publishing that would have contained um, the series of historical poems in the middle section of this book. So it seemed it seemed a good fit in that, you know, it, it referenced time and loss and yeah. Yeah, no, it certainly that uh, I got to talk to you about it because titles are something I've always struggled with. Um, mm -hmm. And like both with collections, it's something that takes me a really long time, which I don't know if that's necessarily abnormal. I think most people take a while to name a collection, but especially with individual poems um, or texts, I feel like it can be really hard for me and a lot of other people too, to title their work. And so it's a question I ask a lot on the show, but I have to ask, um, how did you find titling the book different from titling the poems uh, within it? And did you feel that that process was kind of like different at all? Um, what kind of went into that? Um, it, it was a very different process titling the book. I, I usually have an easier time titling individual poems, um, you know, with the exception of, of one or two here or there where I have to go to other poet friends and say, please help. <laughs> usually, <laughs> often I start with a title and write the poem around it, or else the title sort of materializes while I'm working on a draft. Um, they don't usually give me much trouble, most of them. Um, but this one, uh, with the book, I I'd gotten used to calling it one thing, and then I had to dig through my brain to find something else that was beautiful and fitting. And then I had to do it again. And I'm not, I'm not very good with changes of plans. So I, I had to find one that I really loved so that it was worth the discomfort. So it's yeah. kind of a good process, but I'm very happy with where we ended up. Yeah, no, it's a really cool title. And also the cover of the book is like one of my favorite covers that I've seen in a while. So if you're listening to this and you haven't seen that cover, um, Google the lost time accidents, try and find the picture of the cover. It's got this really cool kind of creepy mannequin on the front. Uh, and I'm, <laughs> I'm so in love with it. I think it's so cool. Um, I, that. I love the cover too, so I'm glad. It it's so, so cool. Um, I have a question for you, Sile, from my last episode's guest. And I'm hoping this will open us into a bit of a broader discussion around uh, what Tara Boren is wondering. And Tara asked, what keeps you writing these days? So... I, I don't know if this will be a relief for other writers to hear or or if it's disheartening, but honestly, sometimes nothing does. <laughs> sometimes mm. I, I have to stop for a while, um, you know, whether it's the overwhelm of the world or just the quirks of my brain and body or, or both. You know, there are times when I don't have the resources to write. Um, so if I can, I keep doing writing adjacent things, you know, like editing or going through work and giving feedback with one of my workshop groups. I keep notes to myself with lines and ideas that I'd like to write about later when I'm able. Um, 
But the one thing I find most helpful is to have other artistic outlets that might not require as much heavy brain work from me. So if I can switch to something like drawing or spinning, it, it keeps me feeling productive and creative. But yeah, there, there are always periods where I, I don't keep writing. <laughs> I, I know it'll come back eventually. And I, and I hope that's helpful for other people to hear that, you know, if you're in that space where you can't write right now, that's okay. It'll come back. I think that's something I've been struggling with. I, I've brought this up a ton on the show. And so listeners are probably like sighing at home right now. Like, why is Andrew talking about not being able to write again? Um, <laughs> but I, I feel like I frequently am talking about this because it's the case. Lately, I've been getting back into writing, which is really refreshing. Um, and I wanted to ask too, I, I hadn't planned to ask you this, but I was wondering like, um, when you are starting to write again after a period like the one that you've described, where maybe you've been doing other creative work or you know, having creative outlets that weren't writing, when you come back to writing, um, it can be really difficult, or at least for me, it feels really difficult to pick up where I left off, find that same stride, find that same rhythm, um, mm. and be writing at the same pace, uh, at the same level, that sort of thing. So do you have any tips for, for me, I guess I'm asking, but also for other writers um, who might be kind of like returning to writing after a while away? Well, I know for me that after after a while away, I, I don't think that I'm at the level I was when I was doing it every day consistently because, you know, it's a skill. It takes practice. You have to keep at it um, to, to get it to work well. So I think the best thing is to just recognize that when the creative flow comes back, you might, you might have a burst of ideas and have a lot that you want to do. You're going to have to be okay with letting it be messy. You know, you're going to have to be okay with, with messy first drafts and not being where you were before. And it might take a little bit of time for you to get back into your rhythm. And that's something that I have to remind myself about is that it, that's what editing's for. It's okay if it's messy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that's like one of the things I've been realizing too. Um, again, transparency for the listener, I feel like I came back to writing and working on what I've been working on um, for the past like year or so. And I probably came back to it like a month ago now. And I feel like since I've come back to this same project, I'm seeing it in new ways, in different ways that have really helped me to, I think, strengthen it. I hope strengthen it. Uh, and so that rhythm being a little different coming back has been really nice too. Um, I don't know, bit of a bit of a digression, but yeah. Um, another thing I wanted to ask you about. So you read a really cool poem for us um, so far already today. I'm going to get you to read some more later. Um, but one of the things that I had noticed in the poem that you read for us, this body as a Rube Goldberg machine, um, was the way that lines end in the poem. I was really fascinated by this, especially some of my favorite lines I underlined and put like a little slash at the end because I was like, ooh, that's a good line break right there. Uh, oh. So there were, there were a couple <laughs> nice of those. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I always appreciate a good line break, a good piece of enjambment, you know, that sort of thing. And so I'm wondering, um, it's kind of a classic question that I ask on the show, but it really pertains to your work. How do you end a line? What where do you end a line to make it impactful? What sort of line breaks stand out to you? That sort of thing. Well, I think, I think impactful is the goal. And so I spend a lot of time, probably more time than I should, experimenting with line breaks in a poem. You know, there have been some that I've just spent probably hours in my, in my word program breaking into different places to see what I can do with it. Um, 
but I like to play around with how a line break can change the meaning of the phrases and the words or how it might surprise the reader if I break it in this place instead of that place. So I think I don't always know exactly what I want it to do until I've seen a few different options and then I go, oh, this is the one. But some of my poems are very um, visually structured on the page. And in those cases, the lines have to, they break where they have to in order to maintain that strict shape. And the odd mm. time you end up with some really interesting ones just because that's the place where the line needs to stop to make it um, hold the shape. But in those poems, I've actually altered line lengths through an entire poem just to make sure I could break one in a weird place that I had my heart set on. <laughs> so <laughs> it, I think I find a little bit of, of joy in doing that when, when the shape of an entire poem revolved around one word and that specific line break. <laughs> Yeah, and I think, okay, so I have to ask you about this too. It wasn't a thing I planned to ask about, but um, as I've been working on this project that I've been working on, one of the things that I've been playing around with the most at this stage is line breaks. And one of the things that I've been having trouble with is spacing the poem on the page. So it sounds like this is something you think about um, quite a bit in your work. It's something admittedly that I haven't thought a ton about in the past, but I'm starting to now. Um, what kind of tips do you have? What sort of things do you look for as you're trying to space a poem, find the right shape for a poem? Um, like, what should I be doing? Hmm. I think the biggest thing is just experiment. It, it takes more time in editing that way. But if, if you actually sit down and, and physically, visually try breaking it in different places and see what it does until you're comfortable with it, or until it makes you uncomfortable, if that's the goal, if you want it startling, you know. Um, I like to break lines in places where you get really good enjambment or it alters the meaning of the word so that you can also almost have two meanings. If you stopped at the, at the word at the end of the line, it might mean one thing, but if you enjam it and keep reading, it changes, it sort of layers things. So I don't know how, how helpful <laughs> that is, but I think just really playing with it. Give yourself the freedom to do it a bunch of different ways until you find something that that either you love or that is startling in a really interesting way. I will definitely try playing around <laughs> with my spacing a little more because yeah, it's something that I've always been scared of. I feel like there's a lot of writing that I read where everything is left aligned. The line lengths are of mm -hmm. similar, you know, like it's like, seems to be that that's the case and I think for a lot of poems that's what the poem needs and what the poet wants um and that's really cool too and I think that's been the case for a lot of my writing in the past but I'm at a point now where I'm like wait a second if I start <laughs> hitting tab or space and you know moving these lines a little to the right I can yeah. really change how this poem means and how this poem works exactly um, and yeah. I think that's like the coolest thing. Um, I and just one, don't know how to do it. <laughs> one really interesting thing that that you could try that I really enjoy, and it's and it's difficult. It's a bigger experiment, but I've enjoyed writing poems in two columns. I have a few mm. that I've done like that. There's a couple in this book, and then there's another one that's not yet um, published in in book form that I really like. So that you can read the columns either separately or together. And each one is almost a poem unto itself. But if you read it together, it makes a different shaped whole. And I, I 
really enjoy that. It's it's difficult, it's interesting, it's challenging, but it I like the way that it changes how you read it. You could even read it with another poet if you were doing it in person, you know, you could have two oh, voices. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I I always find poems like that as a reader. I'm like, how do I read this poem? And I think that's kind of the point of it though, is that as a reader, I'm like kind of thrown for a second. And it's like, okay, if I read it this way, it means this. If I read it this way, it creates different meaning, you know, mm -hmm. and I'm kind of like thrown for a second. And I always find that like difficult as a reader, not in any way off-putting. It actually probably draws me into the poem a little more, but that structure is always so fascinating to me in that I don't know where to start or how to read it. it it's just, it's so fun. I really mm -hmm. like poems like that. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> um, okay, we are flying through our questions, but I am wondering, Celia, if I could ask you to read another poem for us. Absolutely. Um... I think I'm going to end up reading one from each of the three sections of the book. So that works out nicely. I like the symmetry. Cool. <laughs> and since I was talking about museums, I'm, I'm going to read one of the museum poems. Uh, this is called Elegy Underwater. In the museum's belly, this memory warps with whale song or something like it hums from metal boxes near the ceiling. The cage alters the sound bending like my voice crooning into a Coke can to make the aluminum buzz. To imprison the ocean, ripple the walls with plaster, paint them three shades of blue. A fraudulent light plays phosphorescent, shimmering over whale's skeleton and my cheeks. In a room, nothing like water, my child lungs ache with the pressure. Whale is a series of organic shapes drilled through, suspended from wire, weightless, levitating, a child's mobile quivering in the air conditioning. The weight of whale ossifies, her aria coalescing with my bones until my feet drag, burdened by the ocean. With limbs surgically detached, the tunnels of her 400 pound heart might have been built by giant arterial wasps. If love really orbited in an organ like that, maybe Whale could have forgiven me. Before the museum, there is flesh, fat, stink on the beach, her bulk engorged with plastic, vertebrae straining through starving muscle like mountains forming, buckling outward. After, Whale is a wailing dirge, a sculpture instead of an epitaph. Very, very cool. Uh, this is another one of my favorite poems, and I'm so glad you keep picking them. Um, <laughs> this, it this so was, well. <laughs> yeah, this was such a cool poem for me because I hadn't thought about it like this image in the way that you have uh, in many of these spaces. And I also felt like, yeah, like you mentioned, um, there's kind of a museum feel to the book. And so stumbling on and focus, focusing upon one artifact for the duration of a poem is very fitting for, for the text as a whole. Um, and I definitely uh, really enjoyed too how, um, you know, this, this particular poem doesn't fear going into something a little gross, which is the image of the whale washed mm -hmm. up on the beach. I always find that, I found that when I was reading this book, um, something that was kind of almost like a subtextual thing was that there was this feeling of like, I don't know, I don't know if you intended this, 
you don't have to tell me if you intended this, but I felt like there were points where if it was like one of the artifacts was an old toy or something, then there would be like almost like a creepy aura to the poem uh, in Mm -hmm. some spaces. Uh, And this was one of those poems where it was kind of like, I wouldn't say creepy, but I think there wasn't a fear of describing gore and going into that sort of thing. Like this seems like an element of your work um, that I really appreciate because I can't think about those things very long and I definitely can't write about them. Uh, so, <laughs> so I find it so impressive when other people can. I think it's like one of the coolest things. Um, but yeah, this, this is another poem too about a body and uh, it's not a human body, right? It's a whale body, but um, it's still about a body. And so I said earlier, I teased that I wanted to talk to you about the body and how you perceive it um, right. because this seems integral to a lot of these poems. So Um, you've got a few poems in here where the body of the speaker also becomes conflated with objects included in the poems. This was something that fascinated me. So can you tell me a bit about what goes into your perception of the body? Is it kind of like something you've read about? Um, And if so, who or what have you read um, regarding it? Sure. Um, I think I find that really fascinating too. Um, And I do enjoy reading other writing that does that kind of work where the human body is also something inanimate or something animal. Um, And I'm thinking about books like um, maybe Amy LeBlanc's I Know Something You Don't Know, where her speaker's bodies are sort of tangled with plants and animals. Um, And I love um, fiction like uh, by Brooke Bolander. She writes stories, some of which are written from the perspective of a dinosaur or an elephant, and they all have complex emotions and histories and experiences just like we do. Um, but I think maybe for me, it's probably just a very shaky sense of where my own body ends and the rest of the world begins. I, I think I experience my body in the world very differently than a lot of other people do. So I often find myself looking to objects as metaphor and analogy to help me communicate things that I have difficulty getting across in any other way. Um, Maybe because objects and animals are easier than people. I don't know. But (laughs) (laughs) there's also the fact that, you know, that women's bodies are often objectified and and reduced to objects to, to what they can do or provide for other people. So I think that some of my speakers have in these poems have lost some agency and are seen as objects, but others are empathizing with objects um, to, to learn more about themselves. Right, and it, it struck me too, as you were saying that, that um, this was not something I had thought about until just now, so it's not gonna come out as a great thought, but okay. <laughs> I, I, think, I think it's interesting too, because if you consider um, the body, and I think most people would, as an objectified image, Um, then having bodies that are conflated and intersect with objects in the text, not only, I think there is maybe a reductive way of looking at that and saying, well, then the body just becomes an inanimate object. But at the Mm -hmm. same time, the inanimate object becomes a body with agency. And so there's a sense of like reclamation there for me, like reclaiming the agency that's really interesting too. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, I don't know if that's something you intended or thought about, but that just struck me now, so I had to say it. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you did, because I agree. (laughs) Cool, cool. Um, Yeah, is this, so um, obviously the way that bodies work in this book 
is super kind of like interesting. Um, on the back of the book, um, there is a reference to, in Roxana Bennett's kind of blurb for the book, um, they talk about the Island of Misfit Toys too. Mm -hmm. um, and I really thought that that was very fitting. Um, the idea of kind of parts strewn about uh, that are collected to create things. And so that seems to be the sense of, uh, or the image I get of the body in this book too, is kind of, as you mentioned, um, like grabbing objects that are nearby uh, and using them as metaphor, using them as images that can help us construct a better understanding of the body. Because I have to say, this is me maybe going into my own personal thoughts again, but I think like my perception of the body is very abstract. For all that you look in a mirror and you can be like, well, there's my legs, there's what I look like, you know, whatever. Um, I feel like it's really hard to pin down exactly how we move through the world. And that idea of motion was something that seemed integral to a lot of your poems as well. Um, I don't know if that's something you can speak on, just a thought that I had, um, but it's interesting to me. I don't know. Uh, yes, absolutely. And I think you know, especially with the with the first poem I read, um, thinking about the body as a, a kind of functional or, or dysfunctional machine, you know, what what causes it to move and what stops it from moving and how does it interact gracefully or, or clumsily or or at all with its surroundings? Yeah, I think that's definitely something that I think about, you know. Because, and I don't know if it comes from the fact that I, I live in a difficult, clumsy body with wonky joints and I bang into things and knock things over. So I don't, I don't interact with the world in a very comfortable way a lot of the time. And so mm. I think, you know, yeah, I think part of it comes from there. And then, you know, what you said about looking in the mirror too, trying to figure out what, yeah, I can see that I have a body, but what what does that mean? What does it mean to, to what's around me and how I interact with what I can see? Yeah, it's, it's always kind of perplexing and fascinating to me at the same time. I don't know. It's very interesting stuff. Um, but we also talked there about kind of objects being at hand and like found objects. And this was something I wanted to ask you about as well, um, because it seems to me that many of the poems in the book um, use or evolve around found objects. Um, can you talk to me a bit about what goes into writing a poem about an artifact that you stumble upon or that the speaker stumbles upon, um, that sort of thing? Mm -hmm. um, well, I, I think it probably starts with being uh, unapologetically fascinated with just about everything <laughs> and with having kind of a weird, intense empathy for inanimate things you know, whether whether it's an old toy or a broken plate or, or a feather or just anything. I, I like the exercise of trying to imagine an object as aware of itself and its history and its surroundings. And, and if it was, how would it feel or what would it think? I think every object for me becomes a metaphor for some part of being human. And the objects that I choose give me kind of a, a tangible way to explore that. Yeah, so I this is a question I'm going to tack on to that then, um, because you said the the objects you choose give you a way to explore that. And I imagine that way that you explore that sort of thing will change drastically based on what object you choose. Um, mm -hmm. So with that in mind, how do you pick an object to write a poem about? Or does it or is it one of those things that kind of just comes to you? It's it's usually pretty random. 
um, things that that just pop up in something I've read or heard. Sometimes there are things that I own or have owned or something that belongs to someone else I know. Yeah, I think it is pretty, pretty random. Um, but, you know, looking back at what you said before about the the sort of creepy factor in some of the poems, I definitely gravitate toward things that are a little bit creepy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I, I often say to people that I, I like to take beautiful things and make them a little bit disturbing and take disturbing things and make them a little bit beautiful. So if the object fits into those categories, then I'm more likely to want to write about it. I really like that. That's a really cool statement. Uh, I'm very happy that you said that, that <laughs> I'm going to be thinking about that for a long time. Uh, okay, oh, cool. Um, I have another question for you before I ask you a question for my next episode's guest, which I'm going to do in a second. Okay. Um, I'm going to ask you, we uh, have spoken a lot about your poetry um, which makes sense. You've you've got this book of poems out that is mm -hmm. very cool. Um, but you're also a very talented visual artist. You did the cover mm -hmm. for my first chapbook, which I <laughs> loved. Uh, is it's like one of the coolest things, the pictures of the butterflies that I've seen. Uh, and so I have to ask you a little bit about the visual art too, because if I didn't, I would be making a mistake, and I can't do that on my podcast. So. Uh, <laughs> Uh, can you tell me a little bit about how visual art might impact your poems and, and your writing on the page? Sure. Um, first of all, thank you for saying that, though. I appreciate all the kind words about my artwork. And I was very happy with the cover image for your for your chat book. That was an absolute pleasure to create. So I'm glad that you're happy with it. Um, <laughs> and in a nice way, it feels like we've sort of interacted abstractly before. So, yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So. You know, I'm not sure whether whether one of my arts impacts the other or not, um, because I see the process for creating them as pretty much identical. Mm. I, I feel like all the art and writing I do is just the same work with different ingredients. I make poems the same way I make collages and stories and quilts. And I, I don't think I have absolutely no idea what anything I work on is going to look like when it's finished. I, I can't imagine it. So. I'm always sort of working in the dark, one piece at a time. I start with a color or a line or an image and that's a sort of seed. And then it grows outward from there. I add more pieces or cut some away. So I don't know kind of how, how to compare them to each other. I think of writing as sort of like painting with words. And I think a collage is like a poem and a story is like a quilt. So they're all very much the same for me, no matter whether the ingredients are words or a string or paint. <laughs> so I don't know, that's a very good answer, but that's that's what it looks like for me. No, I, I really like that because I think it's something that I might pick up on as a reader in your work. And indeed in a lot of, I think poems that I really appreciate as a reader, um, where you get a sense at the start of the poem or maybe even through the middle of the poem or whatever, um, that the author, the poet behind it is actually looking for something to add on at times and is searching and questioning. And I find that super interesting as a reader because so often your job as a reader is to interrogate the lines in front of you. Um, mm -hmm. And so when an author is doing some of that interrogation of the world around them too, it feels kind of like you're working together on something in a way that I really like. And, and there's a sense of resonance there that I really appreciate as a reader. And I found that in your work too. I, I found that um, there were opportunities as a reader to 
question things that were being written in front of me, seek things beyond the page, that sort of thing, and to think through these poems. By the way, if you're listening to this and you haven't read the book, um, when you read the book, because I hope you will, um, you will be questioning things around you for a very long time. We've talked about the body <laughs> so much today because I've been thinking like heck about the body since I put the book down for the first time. Uh, so, you know, you, you will be thinking about these things once you read Celia's book, and I hope you do. Um, it's very, very cool. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I do have to ask you for a question for my next episode's guest without knowing who they are, because to be honest, I don't know who they're going to be yet. So mm -hmm. is there something I can ask to a poet, it'll probably be a poet, um, about okay. their work, about life, about literally anything? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so this was difficult for me. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't sure what to ask, but then I went with someone, something that I would be really interested in hearing about. So I, I really love trivia and little random bits of knowledge. I, I sort of collect them. They end up showing up in my writing all the time. And I'd like to know if this happens for anyone else. So my question is, has any random or weird fact ever inspired a piece of your writing? Or is there one that you've always wanted to write about? Okay, this is a great question. Uh, oh, I do that mean thing now where I turn it around on the person who asked it. Um, so, Sile, uh, has there ever been like, I, I sense the answer is yes. So, what uh, weird facts or ideas or things have shown up in your writing or inspired a piece of your work before? Well, let's see. Um, one of my favorite ones in this book is that. Um, Nikola Tesla once fell in love with a pigeon. I absolutely <laughs> love that one. That's fascinating to me. I had to write a poem about that. And uh, another one that showed up in a story I was writing about moths um, is that there are some moths that like Luna moths and Atlas moths that don't have mouths because once they hatch from their cocoons, the rest of their lifespan is going to be so short that they don't waste any energy eating. They basically just reproduce and then they die. They have such a short, and I, I just thought that was sort of beautiful and, and sad to think of how how brief and, and flimsy this, this beautiful thing's existence is. So there's two for you. <laughs> Those are both really different, but very, like I would want to write poems about those things after reading them. In fact, <laughs> I, I just had the thought while you were um, listing those facts off, I was like, you know what, if I'm ever stuck for writing a poem again, I'm just going to start reading like, a book of facts like I'll just google random facts and see what happens because it sounds like that's a really good jumping off point for poetry is just obscure is. pieces of knowledge it seems always so inspiring to me I absolutely do that I have a stack of books that I go to when I feel stuck I have one called the totally useless history of the world I have one that's the QI book of the dead you know pretty much anything that Mary Roach has written yeah if you get stuck <laughs> do that it's wonderful <laughs> That is going to be my new tactic when I get stuck next time. You should have said that when I was like, when I'm returning to my work and I don't know what to do. That's a great one. Didn't even think that's of that. A great yeah, piece that's of better advice. advice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm definitely going to use that. Um, Sile, I have to ask you for one more thing before we take off, and that is to read one more piece from your book for us. Okay. Well, why don't I read the poem about Nikola Tesla and the pigeon? <laughs> Love that. Yes. Okay. Uh, this is called Nikola Tesla Mourns His Beloved. In the end, he hears electrical signals trilling, tiniest explosions through a network of microscopic roots, 
from pigeon's brain to smoke-tipped wings on the 33rd floor. He watches fingertip lungs shuddering, too small to hold a song. Pigeon's reptilian eyes flash white, gold, bright, lit bulbs reduced to shadows. Numbers etched in ink and coils of copper dissolve into snowy down, where he touches, speaking the vibration of her name through world wire, tendrilling under floorboards, signaling wing twitch, talon clutch, and head lolling. Hand grazes, beak falls breathlessly open. Only his lamp illuminates something broken, bird-shaped ash on the floor holding his fingerprint in bas relief and one white feather humming down from the sill. So cool and even cooler knowing the pigeon fact. Uh, thank you so much. <laughs> For, for sharing those poems and, and your responses welcome. to my answers today, Celia. I really appreciate your time. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. No problem. I'm going to throw it back to me doing a little sign off. So there we are, folks. That was me chatting with Sile Englert. I hope you enjoyed that interview. We talked about a lot of kind of weird and interesting parts of poetry that I didn't intend to uh, when we first started talking over email. So uh, really cool. And thank you for going to those places with me, Sile. Uh, I really appreciated your time for that episode. Um, I hope you enjoyed that. And I hope to also see you if you're listening. Uh, at the launch for my second chapbook, which I'm just going to plug one more time at the end. Uh, it's called Poems for Different Use. It's coming out with Rose Garden Press. We'll be launching it November 14th at 1 o'clock Pacific. All the details for that will be on my Twitter at TheAndrewFrench, um, so you can check it out there. Um, without much else to say for this week, just the usual housekeeping. If you enjoyed what I'm doing here, um, we can make it official. All you have to do is subscribe to the show. It's super easy. You can do it wherever you're listening to this episode. Um, there should be a way to subscribe if you're having trouble with that. Well, you can also leave a review. Uh, or, heck, if you're feeling really up to it, you can do both. Uh, leaving a review helps other people find this show. And by way of finding the show, find the poets who are on the show, which is the entire purpose of the show. Uh, so if you leave a review, it's super helpful to everything that's going on here. And it doesn't take that long. Uh, so that's my plug. That's my call for reviews, uh, my call for subscriptions. And that's pretty much everything I've got for you. I will see you soon with what will be a very exciting episode that I've got planned coming up. Um, so stay tuned. Uh, again, I am on Twitter at TheAndrewFrench. My name is Andrew French, and this right here has been Page Right. <laughs>